welcome to The Observatory. I'm Jessica Helfen. And I'm Michael Beirut. The Observatory is a podcast from Design Observer. On each episode, we talk about a few topics that are on our minds and in the air. This episode is sponsored by our friends from Shutterstock. With 60,000 new images added every day, Shutterstock's collection is always fresh with new royalty-free images for every taste. You can save 20% off their standard image, video, and illustration licenses when you visit shutterstock.com slash designobserver. On the last episode of the Observatory, Michael talked about the faux handwriting font on the amicus brief to the Supreme Court in the case of Samsung versus Apple, signed by more than 100 designers, from Dieter Rams to Calvin Klein to Julie Annixter, head of the AIGA. Today, we're going to put aside the quirks of legal typography. We're going to talk about the case itself. And this is kind of a big deal. It's the first design patent case to reach the Supreme Court in more than a century. So let's start by explaining a little bit about the case. Michael, do you want to take it from here? Yes, uh, as I understand it, and I'm not a lawyer, but um, my understanding is You're as the follows. father of a lawyer. I'm the father of a lawyer, but that doesn't <laughs> make me any more of a lawyer. About 10 years ago in 2007, Apple filed patents on the iPhone, both its form and its graphical user interface. Now, Samsung was an Apple supplier then and then became an Apple competitor. They came out with the Nexus S and the Galaxy S. The resemblance was such that Apple sued Samsung. Two years later, a jury found in favor of Apple. So Samsung pays Apple $548 million. Big money involved with this. Samsung appealed, and their appeal was based on the fact that we're talking about a very complex technology product, the user interface and, and the rounded corners. And by the way, everything about the look and feel issues seem to keep coming back just to rounded corners in a way that must disconcert product designers everywhere. Samsung said that those rounded corners and the user interface are just part of a complex technology product, arguing in part, I think, that um, there are details that are so generic that one couldn't actually claim any sort of proprietary ownership of. So Samsung has asked for about $400 million back. So um, the brief we're talking about is what's called an amicus brief. And an amicus brief is uh, when the parties to a lawsuit go out and enlist experts in the field to support their position. And so uh, the main case they're making is that a product's visual design in the minds of consumers, becomes the product itself. Okay, this story is so fascinating to me, I cannot get enough of it. Now, the design historian in me wants to jump in here. I am fascinated with the idea of precedent. And of course, designers are all about precedent in a way. We have standards manuals, we have rules. But when you deal with history, precedent, of course, has to do with something that maybe existed where the cultural coordinates were not the ones that you are currently dealing with. The main precedent goes back to the late 19th century is a case called Gorham versus White. It was about flatware. What at that time constituted design? It was things like metal and woolens and silk and bas-relief. This is 1871. There was no graphic user interface. This case and this amicus brief hinges on a different kind of perceptual value. And in the amicus brief, they say things like design is a proven catalyst for American business and economic growth. It's a much wider, more pervasive part of contemporary culture. They made the case back in Gorham versus White that it had to do with whether an average person could detect the difference between thing A and thing B. Is the idea being that um, if you couldn't tell the difference, you might accidentally buy one 
from white instead of by Gorm or vice versa. So it's, it's in effect a knockoff. It's my understanding that if in the eye of an ordinary observer, or what they called a purchaser, they didn't call them consumers or customers back then, they called them a purchaser. If the resemblance would, would be such as to deceive the purchaser and sufficient to induce him to purchase the other one, then you're dealing with patent infringement. That precedent was initiated on the heels of, or really at the outset of the Industrial Revolution. Mm -hmm. It's such a different moment in yeah, time yeah, yeah. now. No one's implying that someone going out to buy an iPhone would accidentally buy a Galaxy, just thinking an iPhone, that's the one with rounded corners, right? Then they, you know, I mean, it's not like Samsung makes no attempt to conceal the fact that they're a Samsung product uh, with a completely different uh, underlying technology. This is really about Apple attempting to, I think, protect not just its design, but in a way the time-consuming and risk-taking R&D that went into developing that design and having made that investment, they're just peeved that uh, Samsung, just once the water has been proven to be fine, jumps in afterwards wearing the same bathing suit. There's another amicus brief on the other side. Now, it's coming from Dell, Hewlett-Packard, Facebook. Uh, it's interestingly not signed by any individuals. They are making the case that we can't actually, we talked last week, Michael, about conscious uncoupling. You can't actually divorce the design from the function, right? Mm. Design is function. And so it's fascinating historically. It's fascinating as a, as a legal matter that has reached the highest court. It's fascinating uh, given the ubiquity with which we depend upon and identify with these uh, prosthetic extensions of our productivity. Mm, yeah, it is interesting. So, Michael, among the many signatories on this amicus brief is your partner and my dear friend Paula Scher. I noticed she signed it. Did they ask you to sign? Um, yeah, I did get an email asking me to consider signing it, and I... Um, um, I did not, and I can't say that I stayed up night after night tossing and turning, worrying about this. I think these giant corporations are fully capable of doing battle on Olympus without uh, pesky little humans like me uh, interfering in their affairs. But um, I've often defined you as a pesky little human. <laughs> but, 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 <laughs> just, just so we're clear. <laughs> Maybe it's because I'm a graphic designer, but if I have a bias, oddly, I think it's less about protecting the uniqueness of each creation and more about being open to the idea that influence and the kind of precedent you were talking about before is actually part of the fuel that makes design go on. You know, I think that every single innovation actually is both a unique thing and the starting point for a whole series of subsequent innovations, some of which may start out as imitations, um, but others may be take inspiration from those things and take it to a new place. And um, when people rip off my work, which occasionally I've seen happen, I actually usually find it more funny than um, irritating. Oh, you noticed. Thank you for imitating something I did. Um, but <laughs> if I look at almost anything I've designed, almost all of it has to traffic in some way on some broadly understood convention that I'm either referring to or subverting or playing with or else the work we do doesn't communicate. You know, it's sort of the fact that we sort of have all agreed on what, uh, what a letter A looks like means that typography has inherent within it a certain amount of uh, convention and then all serif typography, all sans serif typography, all has within it a sort of a resemblance in and of itself that isn't just functional, that actually does have connotations. And I think somehow um, if everyone just was able to just build these kind of like 
like absolute impermeable brick walls around every single thing they designed, you wonder how any progress would actually be possible. I don't remember actually being encouraged to think about the ethical dimension of my work and stealing and plagiarism as a designer when I was in school. Did you, were you actually urged to think that way? Um, no, and in fact, oddly enough, when I was educated in the late 70s at the University of Cincinnati, the prevailing ethos almost was less about the idea that there was something imperative about creating unique works of art and much more about systems thinking. This was sort of when Helvetica was, um, was at its peak in a way. And the idea that if everyone just used the same grid and used the same two weights of Helvetica, that would actually be good for communication, make us all better and more well-informed citizens, and rid the world of this needless, endless quest for kitschy variety, which was looked at with skepticism by most of my professors. That's a really interesting point, though, because in the wake of the international style, in the wake of the Bauhaus and the, the rules that governed the education and study of design then as now had to do with something that might be seen as a plagiaristic thing, right? So where does a template fall? Yeah, yeah. So our portfolios look alike, our websites look alike, the content of them is different, but that whole notion of how the armature itself has some kind of intellectual property or value or patent ability is real, that I don't think that we really stop and think about. And the modernists would never seek to protect those things. They actually thought that um, the world would be improved by having replicable examples of high design out there for everyone to use. I remember being in this long car ride with my late mentor, Massimo Vignelli, and having a debate about standardized modernism as a thing that was good for design versus individual acts of creative genius as a thing that was good for design. And I remember him saying, you know, what was great about modernism was he said specifically it's replicable. There's this way to teach it and there's a way to practice it. And he said it takes designers who aren't particularly talented and makes them good, and it creates a possibility for good designers to be great. I think that position is sort of an ideological one and kind of ignores, among other things, the fact that Massimo had a strain in his own personality and in his own design practice that was very emotional and very irrational in a way. You know, it just was he had he had a, a taste for this Italian intuitive gesture that wasn't about rationality and grids, was was about scale and drama and things like that. And his genius came out of that quite a bit. If he saw something that was like someone copied him, he was really excited. He says, look at this. This is fantastic. And he sort of said, like, design is getting better all the time. Look at this new thing. And I'd say, well, they, they just copied you, Massimo. He said, yeah, it's fantastic, you know. <laughs> you know, in a way, it's really weird. But, um, you know, his point of view and the point of view I suspect of a lot of modernists were, was better design for a better world was actually not a, a, something you did for capitalist gain. It was something you did to kind of, in the broadest way, make the world a better place. And, right, um, and some might say that that was a kind of a fascist lockdown on you have to use this type yeah, of yeah, exactly, or, there, or yeah. there's the door, right? Yeah, exactly, and there were moments exactly. in my education when I thought, having grown up with a father who collected 19th century posters, like I could not square the romance of graphic design as I had been raised to view it with that kind of dyed-in-the-wool modernist, there's no other way but my way or the highway to do things. And yet, 
you have to think about these, uh, what you have often called the high priests of design, these guys at that time in history coming out of two world wars, incredible loss of life, fascism, that modernism must have looked like mindfulness does now, yeah. right? Oh, absolutely. Like it just looked like a way to kind of just slow it down and simplify the complexity and get away from the kind of, you know, really uh, thorny, threatening uh, aspects of, of international warfare and yeah. and distress and dissent. And I think, you know, we're not living in that moment now. We're living in a time when, you know, of course, there's incredible economic disparity and, and war and famine. I'm not saying that this is a peaceful moment. But globally, in terms of the internet and technology, it's a very different moment. And so the value of, of that modernist doctrine really, I think, deserves a reexamination at a moment when we're dealing with behemoths arguing about rounded corners. What constitutes intellectual property or privacy or uh, mine versus yours is really uh, visually a very compelling place to be, be having a conversation. And what's really ironic is something that I didn't notice until this very conversation. It didn't occur to me. If you sort of scan the list of signatories uh, to that amicus brief, the representative of that generation of modernism is really Dieter Rams, the amazing German industrial designer who is revered as the high priest of minimalism. And what's on some level deeply ironic, perhaps, is that when the iPhone came out, it looked beautiful to me, but it didn't look original because it reminded me of something. And I suspect I wasn't the only one. It reminded me of the Braun ET66 calculator that had been designed decades before by Dieter Rams, an object almost the same proportion with, in fact, indeed, rounded corners. And, wow. if, you know, if you see these, if you look at a picture of the original uh, Braun calculator against the, the original iPhone, it's just, I mean, it's so clear that they were attempting to sort of channel that vision of modernism. And so in a way, if Braun would have been on their game, they just would have like stood up and sued the hell out of Apple for stealing their rounded corners. Um, somehow they didn't, and um, and now we have the irony of, uh, of the designer of that product standing up for at least um, the rights of the person that knocked him off first. <laughs> This episode of The Observatory is brought to you by our friends at Shutterstock. With 60,000 new images added every day, Shutterstock's collection is always fresh with new royalty-free images for every taste. You can save 20% off standard image, video, and illustration licenses when you visit Shutterstock.com slash Design Observer. Shutterstock is also the sponsor of the third issue of The Observer Quarterly. as the food issue, which is just out. Um, this includes some great articles by some of the guests we had at Taste, our conference on the relationship of food and design that we had earlier this year in Los Angeles. Uh, one of my favorites is a piece about menus that was curated by Joss Kuhn from the collection of uh, the LA Public Library. And it's, you know, that collection is this amazing history of Los Angeles told simply through menus. And it's got 
menus that sort of like represent every sort of strain. It's got the Atomic Cafe from the post-war era. It's got kind of shocking, uh, uh, racially questionable Chinese and other ethnic menus. It really is interesting to sort of see how uh, menu design alone can really provide a guide to uh, the social history of a place right, like and, Los Angeles. And, and, and Josh, who was a great speaker at our conference, uh, also this we found him because of an exhibit he curated at the Los Angeles Public Library of these menus. And there's a book, uh, we can put a link to it on our site, wonderful book that's a catalog from the show. Uh, the show had a great title. It was called To Live and Dine in L.A. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's and uh, it's really this kind of, uh, you know, cultural snapshot of uh, social history of a city through the menus, through, through the way people ate, where they ate, what they, what it pay, they paid for food, uh, what the kinds of things they ate. It's a great visual way into uh, the life of a city and a time and place that is no more. In that same issue, we have some specimens from the William Drentel menu collection. What was the idea behind Bill's menu collection? Why did he compile those? Uh, an excellent question. I'm hardly in a position to answer. Uh, you know, Bill was, uh, as my children and I have concluded, uh, we, we call him a biblio hoarder. He, you know, he had a lot of books, a lot of books, wonderful library, but the library wasn't just books. Uh, there are many collections and uh, he, like so many of us, thrilled to beautiful examples of design. He lived uh, in Europe before I met him. He'd lived in, in Rome, and he acquired some amazing menus there. He'd spent a couple years in Paris. Uh, and I think he saw these things not only as evidence of design, but as evidence of a kind of social history of those cities. Um, many of the menus in his collection were for private dinners, which is its own kind of, you know, I'm sure, exclusive 1% view on a certain kind of person who ate uh, a certain kind of thing that uh, you might not want or be able to afford to eat even now. But sort of, so they were weird things. They were expensive things. They were exclusive things. There were enough that constituted something that might be worthy of study for someone else. And Bill was a very generous collector. And, and he, uh, during his lifetime, uh, gave that gave that collection to his alma mater, Princeton University, which has a an excellent graphic arts collection, uh, and they generously allowed us to include them in the issue of the quarterly. There are many more things in store for you in this new issue of Observer Quarterly, the food issue. Uh, you can order your own copy today at designobserver.com/books. I have feelings for you I can't deny. Crotch feelings. Crotch? Sorry, but I'm not a soft duck. So listeners, uh, Jessica warned me earlier this week that she wanted to talk about this new movie, Sausage Party, and that ties into the food issue we were just talking about. We did not fit it in, obviously, but um, she, she saw it and was like really enthusiastic about it and told me to go see it so we could talk about it on the podcast. And listeners, I did. Uh, Jessica... Um, please give your highest possible review to the animated okay. film Sausage so, Party. Okay, so people who know me and know that I tend to be a sort of serious sort of person um, might be surprised. <laughs> I will remind you that I was the first person who publicly came out in support of Despicable Me. Uh, Steve Heller told me that um, A.O. Scott, the wonderful Times reviewer, changed his mind about that movie after reading my review. So this is now the second time I am going public with my love of cartoons. And in this case, actually, it has to do with A.O. Scott's review. So when the movie opened, I was reading his review in The Times, got past the part where he said it had the chaotic verve and formal discipline that any good cartoon requires, and saw the following sentence. Uh, he writes, and I quote, You will come for the kind of humor promised in the title and the well-earned R rating, but stay for the nuanced meditations on theology and faith. 
You might find yourself debating whether the film is a Christopher Hitchens-style atheist polemic or a more pragmatic William Jamesian exploration of the varieties of religious experience. This is not a film for children under a certain age. My Indeed, children yeah. are over that age, so they came with me. Um, and J- Jessica, J- wait, are... wait, wait. Can you describe the basic premise of the, the movie? Okay, so the basic plot is much like uh, Pixar's Toy Story. Uh, we're dealing with food, food that is animated, that has personalities, uh, they are voiced by great uh, actors in Hollywood like Kristen Wiig, who does the hot dog bun, uh, Seth Rogen, who's one of the creators of the film, who is Frank, the hot dog, the sort of the main Who's dying to get into the bun and makes dying no to get bones into the bun. It. You've yeah. got improbably Edward Norton, who does a kind of young Woody Allen bagel. <laughs> it is <laughs> a is very fantastic. youthful Woody Allen-ish bagel that is, um, uh, and then he has a relationship that I'm not going to divulge with a lavash that is brilliant. <laughs> Although uh, there is a lot of there's a lot of discussion about how the halal products have been edged out of the West shelves by the kosher products and a lot of hostility a lot of discussion <laughs> and <laughs> indeed uh, the German sauerkraut who wants to exterminate the juice boxes. There's an African-American character who is a box of grits. There have been some questions about racial and social and gender profiling. But the truth is, it goes way beyond that. And it pokes fun at itself. And there is, I mean, it's a spoiler alert, but it's all over uh, the media. So I have to say that the thing that absolutely was so arresting, I think, Michael, you're going to agree, is that this great character emerges at the end that is based on a wad of gum at the bottom of a shoe. It's in a wheelchair with a uh, voice um, analyzer, and it is, in fact, based on <laughs> Stephen J. Hawking. So the idea that a physicist in a wheelchair is reenacted by a wad of gum, I mean, I-, I would say you can't make this stuff up, except they did. They did. It's they did. brilliant. Yeah. No, it's. I have to admit, um, so based on your recommendation, I um, rallied my whole family to see it, except none of them were persuaded, and they were like, are you crazy? <laughs> so I... I was so determined to see it that I bought a ticket and sat by myself in a theater uh, in the afternoon and watched it uh, very self-consciously at first. And partly because a few rows behind me was a dad who I who had brought some children to see it. And there's an there's really an orgy at the end that's probably the most vile XXX rated thing I've ever seen like maybe ever, except it's all just food products and other grocery store uh, merchandise, you know, having simulated sex with each other. Um, it made me very self-conscious and and, uh, and think of the children, please. But the whole thing, as you say, is just so, um, it, you know, reminded me of nothing more than my favorite magazine from when I was a smart-ass kid in elementary school, Mad Magazine. It just had right. this anarchic... It, it's very Mad Magazine, you're smart, right. Smart, dumb sort of thing. I mean, there's a moment that happens fairly early on where there's like a catastrophic kind of spill in the store where oh, a huge the, the thing dystopian of flour, moment. It's that's the movie's dystopian moment. Yeah, yeah. The, the, this thing of flour drops off a shelf and coats everything in kind of like white dust, and they go immediately into what seemed to me like it might be a shot-for-shot uh, remake of the Omaha Beach sequence from Saving Private Ryan, except enacted by Oreo <laughs> cookies and cans of spaghetti that are holding the spaghettios <laughs> that are spilling out of their guts. It's like you enjoyed so, this movie, didn't it's you? Just, See? It's like the writer's room must have just been a blast where they just kept coming up with these ideas. And sort of, um, I mean, the, the movie that I had heard was overtly inspired by Mad Magazine uh, before was... Uh, the classic uh, comedy Airplane, uh, which was just, uh, you 
know, um, the creators are just determined to cram as many jokes as possible into every single frame. And this has exactly the same spirit, except it's not limited by what uh, human actors can do in a, on a real set, but it just has the absolute crazy freedom of animation. Okay, and, and so your favorite thing of the week, I think, wasn't of the week, but it's relevant because it's, among other things, food-related. It is food-related, and um, this week, uh, in other legal news, since we've been talking about a lot of legal news, there's been an ongoing lawsuit against Gawker brought by the performer known as Hulk Hogan, but backed by the bajillionaire Peter Thiel, and um, this week saw the final judgment uh, where Gawker, uh, the, the website Empire, uh, has been sold off to uh, Univision, and Gawker itself as a website is going to be closed down. And so there have been a lot of elegies about Gawker, uh, the good and the uh, not so good that it managed to do over its lifetime. And uh, a couple of places have listed people's favorite articles from Gawker's heyday. And one of them, I saw the title of one of them, and I just remembered how much I liked it the first time around. I went back and I reread the whole thing. A Gawker writer named Katie Weaver uh, wrote this piece called My 14-Hour Search for the End of TGI Friday's Endless Appetizers. And uh, TGI Friday, I guess, had announced this promotion called Endless Appetizers, where for one low price, you could order any one appetizer dish, and they would give you an infinite amount of that. And she decided to just put that to the test. She goes in and she more or less does this blow-by-blow account of attempting to work her way through multiple plates of fried mozzarella sticks. And she's so funny. She's really hilarious. You just want to know her. Every single line. And I was reminded of this game I used to play with my kids on long car trips, which we called the island game. And the island game was you're going to an island, and the only food on the island is X. And it's great, but that's all you get to eat the rest of your life. And over time, they would expand it. My kids would say, okay, so my island food is uh, chocolate chip cookies, but um, can I have an island snack? And what about the island flag? And can I bring a friend to the island? Can I bring a grown-up friend to the island? Because they were afraid that if they were only with a friend, that friend wouldn't take care of them <laughs> like I might, or one of my friends might. So it became this thing, and it became like the island became this empire of long car trips games. And I hadn't thought about this in years until I felt so sorry for poor Katie Weaver, because I think when she went into this, I mean, she's funny and she would have made it funny anyway, but it's the idea that you are restricted to one thing. And she, she says over and over again, if only I'd picked the potato skins, <laughs> if know, only exactly. I'd picked the barbecued wings. Like it's just the monotony of it is its own circle of hell. Yeah. Yeah. No, her editor gave her, um, um, uh, I believe three conditions, uh, that the exercise had to meet. One was that she could not go on Wi-Fi or read a book or go to sleep. Um, She had to stay six hours past the restaurant's uh, 11 a.m. opening time, and she had to, and this is a quote, um, consume mozzarella sticks with the voraciousness of bacteria feasting on the muscle tissue of a corpse. She never says mozzarella sticks are my favorite food, so this is like a horrible dystopian view where, you know, I'll only eat my favorite food over and over again and learn, you know, that monotony can kill pleasure in the most unlikely of places. She doesn't even seem to like these these mozzarella sticks from the first bite. And she eats 32 of them, I believe. And um, and they're not like bite-sized things. I've been to Fridays. I've seen these mozzarella sticks. Oh, and uh, she describes them as the size of, you know, larger than two fingers on her hand. Yeah, one. yeah, yeah. They're, they're really big. And like, and they have like, 
um, you know, cheese grated on them and a little bit of parsley sprinkled on them. And um, she's at GQ now and uh, uh, is re- remains a great writer, is really funny. But this thing is uh, one of the pieces uh, for which Gawker will be rightly remembered forever, if you ask me. So uh, if we'll put a link to it on our site. It's well worth reading, and she's well worth following on Twitter. The Observatory is a podcast from Design Observer. Our website is designobserver.com. You can find links there to things we discussed on today's episode, including Katie Weaver's 14-hour search for the end of TGI Friday's endless appetizers. If you like what you heard today, please tell your friends about The Observatory, or go to iTunes and rate us, or leave a review. Between episodes, keep up with Design Observer on Facebook and on Twitter. And you can order your very own copy of our third issue, the food issue of The Observer Quarterly, at designobserver.com slash books. You can subscribe to The Observatory on iTunes, SoundCloud, or however you take your podcast. Go to designobserver.com slash The Observatory. That's designobserver.com slash The Observatory. And if you're not listening already, please tune into Design Matters with Debbie Millman. Thanks to Shutterstock for sponsoring this episode. Teddy Blanks wrote our theme music. Our producer is Blake Eskin. Talk to you soon, Jessica. Thanks, Michael. Talk to you soon. Thank you.